0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the Fall 2016 UCSB Distinguished Speaker Series. I'm John Greathouse, and with us tonight is Jason Drogi with Uber. Jason is the head of Uber Everything, which I think is the best title I've ever heard for anybody in the world. I'm head of Uber Everything. He's focused on taking Uber's extensive logistics skills. I mean, obviously, Uber's very good at taking cars and people um, and all over the world mapping those to the right destination at the right time. He's taking that core competency, and he's applying it into a number of different fields. You guys have heard of Uber Rush and Uber Eats. Those are just two of some of the endeavors um, that Jason's team is working on. They've rolled, they've rolled these new solutions out to over 25 cities in six countries and on four continents. So You can just imagine uh, the scope of Jason's day when he's talking to people all over the world about rolling out these new initiatives, some of which we know about, some of which we don't, that are still um, in the works. It's great that Jason works at Uber. It's a high-profile company. It's fun and we're gonna learn um, some interesting things about it today. But Jason is a serial entrepreneur. Jason has been an entrepreneur since he was your age, since he was in college. He co-founded Scour, which is the first multimedia video search engine on the Internet in 1997. Um, I think I was 18 or 16, I think, at the time. At um, it's, it's Scour, he was responsible for product development and business development. They grew that company into one million daily active users. So think about the early days of the Internet. There weren't that many people on the Internet, period, and they had a million a day coming for video. So think about how many people could actually access video Um, in a narrowband world in the late 90s. So they had a huge percentage of the total population back then. They grew the company to 65 employees, and it was the number one search engine in 1999. It was later acquired by Centerspan, and we'll talk a little bit about how that exit came about. Jason left Scour after the acquisition. He started a company called Back9 Golf Company. I think it's one of the coolest companies ever, it was a great business. It was a great after all of the chaos and, and high-profile nature of Scour. He started um, a business which was essentially the Kelly Blue Book for golf equipment. So he had over 500 retail establishments all over the country signed up, and they were buying and selling uh, used uh, golf equipment. And he, le- he moved on in 2004. The company was still running. It was uh, still an effective company, but Jason got it to the point where he was able to move on. He joined Phone in 2004. Later, it was known as Gizmo 5 Technologies, He became the president of that company, grew it from 4 to 35 employees, and when he left in 2008, there was over 6 million users. Gizmo 5 was the leading competitor in VoIP to Skype at the time, and Google acquired the company in 2009. Jason's got a pretty good track record, in case you're following along. Jason is a proud product of the UC system. Although he's not a gaucho, he did go to UCLA. Let's give him a warm welcome. (laughs)
1: It's great, uh, great to almost be there. Sorry, I couldn't be there in person.
0: We, well, listen, we appreciate you making the time. We know your day is pretty hectic, and you've got a, a vibrant young family as well. Uh, so so uh, no worries. We appreciate it. So Jason, as I was saying in that introduction, I do think you're the, sort of the quintessential serial entrepreneur. I don't know that you've ever had more than a weekend maybe off in between your, your various ventures, and we're going to talk about a, uh, a bunch of them. Was that the pattern when you were growing up as a child? Were you always engaged in multiple things or was this something that really manifested itself later?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, I I suppose entrepreneurs all come from different backgrounds, like in different interests. Um, You know, for me, like I've always been super curious. uh, And I think as a kid, like, uh, you know, if I had to like be self, like, you know, reflective and talk about myself and my childhood, it's kind of weird, but like, um, you know, if you go back, I guess like, like the common thread is I always just kind of did whatever I was most interested in and I was super curious. And so it wasn't always about money. It was more around like the adventure of like, Hmm, I wonder if I can do this. And then you, I did this and then I wonder if I can do that. And then I failed. And then I wonder if I could do this. And those things, you know, weren't always related to business. I don't, you know, I didn't really even really. I didn't have a concept of wanting to be an entrepreneur until I, until we started scour. Um, And, you know, very early on, I think it was more around like, uh, I mean, I did do some things that taught me business. Like I used to trade, the trade does like baseball cards for profit when I was like nine or 10 years old to like make some spare cash for like, I don't know, whatever you make spare money for then candy or great America, like season pass or, you know, I actually did pretty, pretty well at that, but that's, that's a dangerous game to get into. Um, but I think, like, a common thread among a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, myself included, is just, like, you 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 see a world or, like, maybe a problem that can be solved and, like, wonder why it hasn't been solved. And then there's usually a lot of people telling you, like, oh, well, it's because business, you know, it hasn't been solved for, like, these myriad of reasons and it probably won't be solved. And then you just kind of stir on the problem for a little bit and you're like, I still don't understand why it can't be solved, right. and then you start taking steps toward it, and then you realize that like the people around you might not know what they're talking about, <laughs> and you start seeing a solution where other people maybe haven't, um, and you fail a lot. You get a lot of things wrong, but I think that that's a pretty common trait among a lot of entrepreneurial people. Is they don't is is they're not really guided by the crowd, um, and they and they get a lot of enjoyment around like you know maybe seeing things or figuring things out that other people haven't.
0: Well, a lot of it's timing, too, right? So something that was impossible or impractical, you know, five, six, seven years ago can suddenly be possible. And those same people that are they're sort of steeped in that world of yesterday. I mean, Uber's a great example. Right? Without the smartphone and all that connectivity, I think that's one of the things I miss. Um, and when I looked at the opportunity it was just, you know, yes, wealthy people in Silicon Valley have iPhones, but not, you know, back then most, a lot of people didn't have them. But the break of adoption, as we all know, was 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 astronomical. So I think it's that ability to not just look at the today, certainly don't worry too much about yesterday, be able to look into the future, but not too far. Because if you look in too far, then you're gonna fail there too. It's a sweet yeah, spot.
1: Yeah, I think you have to identify the things that are on linear trajectories and the things that are on exponential trajectories. Like yes. that, as I've, you know, in the past four or five years of like just becoming more mature at identifying opportunities, I think that's like a very important distinction. And that and that was the smartphone thing. Every analyst at the time said it was going to be this linear linear curve, and then like they were all wrong. It was this exponential curve, and that changed the game.
0: Right. Well, let's talk. Let's go way back then to college. Many people watching this at home are you know in their twenties. Um, certainly in this room, we have a bunch of college students. So. You started Scour. I think a lot of people, maybe younger people, don't realize that it was a precursor to Napster. Like Sean Fanning actually said, you know, Scour was, was one of my inspirations. And he started Napster 18 months um, after you guys were at it. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Um, what was it like to be in the dot, um, 1.0 sort of Internet mania? And then go ahead and tell us what ended up happening in that business and what lessons you took, a, you know, took away from it.
1: Yeah, so uh, that started in the dorms at UCLA, um, and you know when you speak about like right time, right place, right circumstances, like UCLA actually had a really robust um, internal network and like pretty pretty uh, robust internet connection to the outside world. And, like back then, it was like a hundred megabit connection into the university, which back then was a lot of bandwidth. Um, and so uh, uh, one of my friends basically built a search engine that searched local dorm networks for, for Windows file shares. So whereas most search engines spider the internet, yeah, he, he noticed that in, in Windows 95, people were publicly sharing a bunch of documents, but there was like, and with no password. So they were publicly sharing it with their friends. He actually built a little spider that went around and like said, oh, what's a, what's a UCLA? And he found a bunch of interesting things that were being publicly shared. You know, a lot of music, of course. Um, and this is back before like MP3s were really like, Known to be, you know, a thing. Um, a lot of video documents, etc. And, and if you tried to download multimedia at the time, you usually had to go to an FTP site, and you know, no one in the room probably know, would, would remember this. FTP sites are so old, but you would have to upload like two files for every file that you downloaded, and these FTP sites were run out of like Norway or something, and you know, it was super hard to get access to this content. And so we figured out a way to like provide people access to this content. Um, Uh, who who all happened to be on broadband. Like the UC system was a huge initial user of Scour. Um, So we actually started in the dorms. We did a lot of irreverent things, which I think is a pretty consistent theme throughout my career. Like, um, you know, like our first URL was scour.cs.ucla.edu. UCLA UCLA did not know about this, Um, (laughs) you know, because one of the co-founders was uh, a systems administrator at the computer science department. Um, The first server was in a dorm room. So literally there was like a like a computer in a dorm room that was like radiating heat, you know, 24 hours a day with like the hard drive grinding as people were like using this service. Um, And so it was just like a really interesting like experimental time. Like in the Internet, you read about you know Yahoo going public and, you know, I'm not even sure we knew what we were living at the time, but it was it was, uh, you know, Definitely, in, you know, everything in hindsight is like, oh, wow, the internet 1.0. But at the time, we were just like, whoa, right. like, we're breaking the rules, but are we? Not really sure. Like, and so that was kind of, a fun, uh, kind of a fun challenge. But it grew. The service wasn't like, as reliable as you would want. Um, uh, it grew. got super popular, uh, relatively speaking. Napster came along and actually made what we were doing actually uh, a bit more robust, like it was a more reliable service. Um, and they started to pass us and then we built a file exchange that did audio, video and images. Um, and then, you know, we were basically the number two player with, you know, as you stated, like at our peak around a million, a million customers or a million users a day. Um, uh, and just stop me if I'm being long winded here, but like, uh, you, you know, at some point, you know, we raised money and that's a story in and of itself of like persistence and like learning about business, maybe, maybe some of the wrong lessons um, early on because we raised it from some Hollywood guys. Um, apologies to anyone in the room, <laughs> parents or families in the entertainment industry. But it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's very, I'll just put it this way, it's very different than raising money from technology VCs. Um,
0: Give us a feel for what, what were the terms of that money. So this is circa 97, 98.
1: Yeah. So
0: they took half the company for $4 million.
1: We were all like 20 years old uh twenty, twenty nineteen, twenty, twenty, twenty-one. Right. Um uh and uh there weren't I mean like there weren't like, like 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 crazy liquidation preferences in the first round. Like like it wasn't that hairy of a deal. It was just the guys we were dealing with were hairy.
0: Yep.
1: <laughs> um and you know they were just tough business people, right? And they like really pushed us on terms. They tried a bunch of stuff. Right. Um but uh uh so so that was the state of things. I mean giving away half your company is not something you should just automatically do. Um, I think we were in a position where we saw value in the connections that they could potentially have in Hollywood. Because our ultimate vision wasn't to build a search engine where people found MP3s and illicit videos and things like that. It was, hey, there's this revolution that's happening in content, and we didn't know anything about timing. We just saw all this usage, so maybe like we can, you know, you know, we can actually like sell content. Right. That, you know, through this platform, and this is kind of a way, sort of free way to get users and then convert them later. Obviously that was a bit naive at the time, considering how long it actually took after 1999, 2000, right. for that actually to become legal.
0: Well, when you think about YouTube, right, they were five years or so after you, and they were able to weather the same storm that you had to weather, which was all the big content owners coming after you with their lawyers, and they were able to do that handoff to Google and make that a successful exit, whereas you guys were just a little too early People just hadn't figured it out. There was no comfort on rights and how do we do digital rights. And it was all about shutting everything down. So like we said at the outset, timing is everything. Right? You were a pioneer. You got the arrows in your back. And some of the folks that came on later were able to benefit from that. What, what, some, yeah, people, totally. what some people may not know is, is Travis, the founder of Uber, um, actually worked at Scour. And you guys were able to work together. So I kind of have a two-part question. And then I'm going to go to the first uh, student question. Um, if you want to, you know, what can you tell us about Travis at the time? Did you see characteristics in, in the way he approached problems that you've now, you know, have manifested itself when, um, when he started Uber? And, um, and secondly, what, what characteristics do you look for when you're out there talking to a young person? So somebody might be their first uh, career opportunity. I know you're very senior. You're probably not talking to a lot of young people now. But when you do hire people that are at the front end of their careers, what are you looking for? So Travis his characteristics and qualities that were entrepreneurial and then young people.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, ever since Uber, I mean, it's kind of funny. I've known Travis for so long. Everyone asked me like, what was he like
0: (laughs) before? Right.
1: (laughs) And it's like, um, uh, I mean, look, Travis from, from like the moment that I met him is like probably the most competitive person I know. Mm. He's, he's just in like, he's also one of the most focused people I've ever met. I mean, and you can see that throughout his career. I mean, like once he gets his mindset on a problem, like he is just incredibly persistent about doing what it takes to solve the problem when he thinks he's right. Yep. Um, and I think that's why Uber is, that's one of the main reasons why Uber is But it is, sure timing and these other things. But given the regulatory and, and, you know, environment, it took someone with that laser focus and that dedication to actually show the world, like, this is a better way. It's also safe, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so I think those things from the very beginning, he's also, I mean, like one thing he's also very good at is like preparing for like, like preparing to win. Like there's a, there's a saying that I'm going to butcher, which is like, everyone wants to win, but nobody wants to prepare. Yep. Um, he's excellent at preparing. Like he thinks through every single, like, like if he's going into a fundraising meeting or a business important business, meeting, he thinks of like 20 different ways it can go, like has contingency plans in his head of like where he's going to take the conversation if it goes down those paths, it's constantly prepared to handle a situation just to make sure that it goes smoothly. So, so that's what I'll say about Travis. Yep. Um, um, and then the second part of the question was so, around.
0: So what do you look for with young people when you're interviewing oh yeah. them?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so I actually do work with a lot of pretty young people. I mean, like my team is, I mean, I have people that are, you know, not, maybe not fresh out of college, although we do have some of those. Um, 25 to 28, I have managers on my team in that age range. Sure. Um, Uber has been, you know, I'm very lucky to work here cause there's a lot of very, maybe people early in their career who are exceptionally high aptitude. Mm-hmm. So what I tend to look for is like, one, do you care? Like, do you like genuinely care about your job or are you here to like make money? Like, are you here to build? Like, is that what fascinates you or is it like, well, I'll get this job and I'll go to the next job and then my career will like, like progress. people are terrible.
0: So I know you have more more than that, but but let me stop you for a second. So what's a good example of someone who showed that to you? How did they show that to you?
1: Um, Usually people who are really good at problem solving, like even in real time, tend to be builders. And that's like a signal that – because if I ask you a hard question, like how much should you pay for a customer, like for a business? Hard, nebulous question, especially in the early stage. If you are the kind of person who's thought thought about these things or thought about how to build a business, like that – like that shows up in your answer Mm. because you're like, well, there's no perfect answer, but I would bound it this way. And I would think of it this way. And like, you can hear the passion in their voice about the problem solving and people who like to solve problems also tend to like to put those things into like, you know, you know, make them real. And, and then they get annoyed whenever they're wrong and they constantly tweak. So like, I'd say that's one, two is like, um, I mean, it's just amazing. Like, you know, I'm trying to think of, like, a good example. I probably should have read through all these questions and thought of this. But, like, like uh, you can just, you can almost see it in their, like, lives, right? Like, you know, maybe not fresh out of college, but, like, into their career, if they're flipping between jobs, they, like, that's a pretty bad sign that they want to build. Because to build things, it can take a number of years to build stuff. Um, they tend to have examples of, like, you know, that's, like, really fingertippy, of things that they've overcome in their career or, or like, forget their career. Let's say you're fresh out of college. You don't have a career just in your life, right? Like one of the best answers I heard to what's the hardest problem you ever solve, which is one of the questions I ask in every, in every interview was about someone who was like, who actually had like a fake leg or something like that. And, you know, had to overcome all this adversity in high school socially. And they had like details about what they had to fight through and the, like, like how they felt and the personal struggle, like that stuff. Like fighters are hard to find and like there's, there's like there's personal life examples as well as professional examples. So those are yeah. that's sort of like what I look for.
0: Yeah, that's good. So I, I, I talked to a student earlier today who has an interview tomorrow and I gave her the advice I often give, which is I think I'm hearing it from you, too. Don't just say what you are. Tell a story that explains yeah. what you are. Don't just say, I, I never give up, you know, actually tell a story where you didn't give up. And that's going to be a lot more powerful than just self-congratulating yourself. Let's take the first question from the students. Um, okay.
1: So my question is, did you have a mentor early in your career? And if so, what's the most important thing your mentors taught you?
0: So Jason, I'm not sure if you're able to hear that because we only got part of that mic. So I got it. it. I got it. I love mentors. And this was actually on my list of questions. And I saw it on the student list. And I said, perfect.
1: Yeah. Um, One of the challenges you have when you start a company so early is you don't really have like there, like there wasn't a lot of, uh, of opportunities for mentors. Like my parents are entrepreneurial. So I didn't have that as an example. I think that the way that we solved the mentor problem is we sort of crowdsourced mentorship, whereas like we had investors who were good at particular things and we identified like, okay, this investor is good at like getting businesses to profitability. Cause like one of the guys that seed funded our company, like on like a like some kind of like dog food company or something. You know, he was like an entrepreneur and he was he was really good at like unit economics and thinking through the business. And then there's like there was someone else that you know was an early investor who was really good at marketing. And there was someone else who was like an advisor for actually one of the guys who ended up investing in the Series A. And he was really good at like financial analysis and could teach us all about like here's how much detail you need in your presentation, and like here's too much detail, and you know, here, you know here's the point of a pitch. So people have actually asked me this mentor question a bunch of times. Like, I don't think there was any one person where I'm like, this was my mentor. I would have loved that. That would have been great and probably been super helpful. I think we just got sort of mentorship by the crowd and we got trial by fire in our, in like our first round of starting a business. Cause we literally went like this and then we got sued for a quarter trillion dollars. And then went on this roller coaster and um, just sort of figured it out. Uh, but I can see why people would, Want to have a mentor? But it would have saved me a lot of headaches. My problem was is, and maybe it's just my personality. Maybe I'm just more stubborn, or I think I know the answer too much. Which, uh, 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 like, like I think for me, it was just really important to find like, you know, okay, this person's the best in the world at X, yeah. so I'm going to take all their advice on X. And this person's the best in the world at Y. I mean, like, we have people at Uber who are like, you know, you know, really good about thinking about the future. Like, like people in the autonomous vehicle division and they have all these like amazing ways about thinking about the way the world will operate in 10 years, and as an operator of an of a active business that has a, prof, you know, that has a, a P&L, um, like sometimes like, I miss the 10 year vision, which is really important when you're managing a team through a lot of adversity, um, and so like, from those people, I pull like, okay, what are they really good at? They're really good at selling the future, and how can that inspire my team today? So I think you just have to be good at, like, finding um, finding the best of the people around you and sort of, you know, you know t- taking taking their advice. You can also get some mentorship from books, too. I mean, wait, wait. like, you know, as cheesy as it is, like, business books, you know, for what they're worth or, like, even, like, some of the, like, self-help books that are, like, yeah, change your attitude, you'll change your work ethic, which will change the outcomes. You know, I mean, like, there's inspiration there, too.
0: Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. So I remember when I first started talking to you about um, um, Back Nine Golf, you, were, you just got so excited and passionate about that business. It, you came out of Scour. That had a, sort of a rough ending. You ended up selling it, but it was obviously um, not the opportunity you thought it might have been. Learned a lot. That was an early venture for you. You had a trial by fire. Talk to me about why you did Back Nine Golf, and how, what were the lessons that you were then? Does that seem like it was a very sedate, bit more of a lifestyle business, you were able to do it at your own pace, which is a hectic pace because you never do anything slow. But what, how did that inform the rest of your entrepreneurial journey? It's almost like you sort of step back, but your way of stepping back is creating another great little company.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, like, like, it's funny, the things that I'm like most proud of in my career are, are also the things, I mean, Uber, it's probably, uh, sort of celebrity status. And I'm proud of the work, but like before Uber, the things I was most proud of are the things that actually got the least press because they had the most substance. Right. Um, which has actually been a point of frustration because sometimes when you create something real, like, like no one wants to write about it. Um, uh, yeah. So, so, so coming out of scour, like we were literally on the cover. I mean, we were on the cover of the wall street journal. I mean, like multiple times, the Hollywood reporter all the time. We had like semi celebrity status, and, it, and like, it just felt like very on, like, like inauthentic, unauthentic, whatever, you know what I mean? Um, uh, when like, people were like, oh, you're so great at business. And I'm like, yeah, but we generated some revenue. We never really got to profit. We actually never really got like, this flywheel going of what the business is. Like, it, like, so I had this real need to like, actually build something from the ground up and mm-hmm. prove that I could do that. And it wasn't just like, oh, internet 1.0 hype and everybody got funded. Right. Um, uh, and... So, I mean, I mean, the way I came about it was just like like when we sold the company, I, I was basically put on a consulting contract with the company that bought it. And, and these transitional contracts can be fairly lucrative and they don't work you that hard, to be honest. Um, and so I ended up playing a lot of golf. <laughs> so I kind of got obsessed with it. And then I'm like, but I'm also pretty frugal. And so when I was playing golf, I'm like, oh, a new golf clubs like 400 bucks. Like, that's ridiculous. It's just a piece of metal and plastic. And so I would always buy used equipment because I'm like, what's the difference if this thing's like been hit a hundred times or zero times, But but I would save myself 150 bucks. And so I'm like, okay, well one, like, uh, you know, I bet I can get better margins on these products because like there is not a defined marketplace. So maybe I could like set the price, which is where the price book came from. Um, two, uh, uh, like I really just wanted to build a business And three, I I fell a little bit into the trap of like, oh, I should totally build a business around something that I'm really passionate about, which is golf, which is like, you know, directionally, like I can work out, but it's often a trap Um, uh, because it clouds your judgment on what's a good business. Uh, And so, you know, I basically just said like, all right, like I'm going to create an online marketplace uh, for used equipment. Um, so I, I manually myself like went to eBay and other websites, and I said, okay, what's the average price for 2,000 different golf clubs? Um, and I spent like three straight days creating this plate, you know, like this price book, or I don't know, worked some insane amount of hours, like just proving to myself I could create a price book. And then I just started like I literally walked into Roger Dunn, which it might be Golf Mart up there, you know, basically the biggest golf retailer in Southern California. And I walked in, and I'm like, I can buy golf clubs. Like, do you guys have any to sell me? And they said, oh yeah, we got all kinds of excess inventory problems. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. You have excess inventory problems. And it was like a super rewarding because I was there with a guy who runs a store who has to generate profit and I was buying stuff from him. So I bought like two or $3,000 with the golf clubs, went home that day, put them on eBay and made like, I don't know, like $1,500 in profit in like three days. And so I'm like, all right, well, I've invested zero except for, like, three days of time in this price book. I've got profits already. Like, there's probably something here. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And then we got a warehouse, and then it got to a certain revenue point. I mean, the market size for, like, used golf clubs is not, you know, it's not a multi-billion-dollar market. Um, but we got it to a few million dollars a year in revenue, good margins, got to the point where it was, like, about as big as it was going to get. And after two or three years, it was – it was um, you know able to be run by like a general manager. Um I probably had the most lessons from that business. Mm. Uh nobody asked me about it except for you John because because it, it, it like it, it didn't make any news. Right. Um but like I would say the number one lesson I learned like I learned how to be a salesman there. Uh which was like like my best story was um I needed deals with retailers in order to get supply of golf clubs. Um, because that was my hard problem. a supply-constrained business, basically. And so, like, uh, uh, so I needed retailers to use my price book to take inventory from their customers and then provide them store credit back. They wanted to do this because then the customer would spend more money in their store. So they liked it, but they didn't know how to sell like two random golf clubs in their store. Like they couldn't merchandise it, they couldn't market right, it. Right. So then they would ship it to me and I would pay them cash for it. And then I would sell it. On the internet, where I could basically build a website that had a more complete set of merchandise. Um, so that's basically how the business worked. But getting retailers on the phone and getting them to do anything is super hard. So what I did was, um, anytime I couldn't get a hold of somebody, like I would literally call them like seventy-five times a day, like star six nine, so they wouldn't <laughs> know it was me, right? Like so, so it shows up at, like private caller, so they didn't know I was calling them. I would figure out when they got into work. So like some guys would get into work at like 8.45. And you'd be like, oh, I, I bet he's having his coffee now. You hit him at 8.47. He picks up the phone. You give him your pitch. If he's ho-hum on it and then he, and then I can't get a hold of him again, I would actually write my sales pitch on um, ca- like, like gift cards kind of and put it on a fruit basket. And then I would send the fruit basket to his office. And so then you would get the fruit basket. Like who the heck sends fruit? What crazy guys send their fruit baskets to you know <laughs> golf retailers trying to get them to use like a price book? Right. But I figured like like the fruit basket cost like thirty bucks. Like the like the actual return on that investment was super high because like everyone called me back, and so I could either spend all my time like I could go to hire a professional salesperson at like some like, ungodly amount of money that I couldn't afford, um, or I could call him for six months and never get a hold of him, or I could send him a fruit basket. Seemed like a pretty, like a, a pretty low cost way to get his attention. So, um, fruit baskets—it's a way to close deals. Uh,
0: no, but um, I think I, I think I think. So so I, see, I I said you were passionate about it. I love talking to you about this business. I think um, it's the side hustle, in a way. Not that this was a side business for you, but, you know, you were doing it out of that passion, and you like to solve problems, and you just described the problem to us in very articulate terms, and you went out to solve it. Um, I wrote an article about side hustles that did pretty well, and I think it resonates with people, because like you, you can sort of ease your way in. You had this other gig that was a sort of a high-paying, low-demand gig, and you were able to take that excess time and not just play golf, but actually create a business in the golfing industry. So what ended up happening to that business? You, you had some other folks run it for a while. Did you end up selling the business or giving it to the employees? Or?
1: Um, no, so, so what happened was, uh, so, so one of the issues with golf, but so I ran to about, I think it was 2008 or 2009. Um, one of the problems with that business is, is that in the winter, it gets kind of rough because people right. don't play golf. Right. Um, so, in 2000, so it was very, very profitable. And then 2008 hit. And it was very unprofitable in the right. winter of 2008 because yeah. of the financial crisis. Sure. Um, I offered it to, our, like, like to my employees. Um, uh, and then I just got to the point where I had too many startups. And I just said, like, all right, I'm going to wind this
0: thing down. Right. Um,
1: so that's where it went.
0: Yeah, and that often happens with lifestyle businesses, right? They play, it, it plays out. It runs its course. And you move on to something else. So let's, let's take the next uh, student question.
1: Where do you believe your biggest break came from? Did this break come from your hard work, luck, or a combination of both?
0: Your biggest break. Mm. Did you recognize it at the time?
1: Yeah, I think it, I think the cliche of like the harder you work, the luckier you, the, the luckier you get. I right. think is very true. Right. Right. Um, I mean, look, luck is part of the game. Like the fact that you're at UCSB, like there's some luck, right? Like, um, you know we were lucky to be born in the US, right? Um, that allows us to do things that maybe people who are born in third world countries like can't do or have to work harder to do. So luck is just part of the game. Um, I mean, the biggest break was definitely scour. I mean, like that, like that put uh, me on the map to like raise the money that I needed for like future businesses. It gave me the education that I need about business, like in a very, very condensed period of time where I had to get smart really, really quickly. Um, it gave me the professional network to like leverage it. Um, but what I would say is that like, at least the way that I think about it is if you're, if you work really hard and you're just like persistent, um, eventually you'll get a break. But when you get a break, you have to exploit it for all it's worth because they don't come along very often. And it's easy to take it for granted when you do get a break.
0: Let's, let's talk a little bit more about some of that learning that you got. You went to, you did the golf company. Then you went to Gizmo 5, which was called Phone at the time. That's where you and I met. I was also yep. at a VoIP company that we had taken public prematurely. Um, we ended up having um, overtures from Google, which we did not accept. Uh, and, and our outcome was, was um, not great. Your outcome ended up being very good. So talk about the, we were both in that same space. I knew what you were going through trying to position your company in the VoIP world. Voice over IP was hot and then it was cold and then it was yesterday's news and you were able to run all the way through that to a successful exit. How, talk to us in, in general terms about what you guys did differently because most of those VoIP companies didn't make it.
1: Yeah. Um, good question. Uh, I think that I think that we just never stops, no matter what the press said, right? Like, I mean, I mean, as you look at that cycle, sure, we rode up the hype. We got a ton of users, you know, we were in TechCrunch and got all this, like, you know, you know brand awareness. Right. And then, like, a year went by and it was like, okay, no one's going to buy us just because we're hot. Like, hmm, what's our business? Uh, and what we found was, in the, you know, that we could actually sell calling credits, you know, which I think is similar to CallWaves business model which I think was, that yep. was, yep. that was your company. Right. Um, and we said, all right, well, where are people buying those things and what kind of margin can we make on them? And then like, what kind of cost structure can we have, like as a company? And we were just very honest about like, Ugh, I'd love to have a hundred employees cause that'd make my ego feel pretty good. But like right now the business we have needs 15 people. And with the revenue that we have and with the margins that we have, like that's about what we need to like get, as financially independent as we needed with the cash we had in the bank right, and then just continuing to like grind on those fundamentals um, and uh, uh you know that kept us alive long enough, and you know you know for Google to come along and want the amazing team that we had um, and want some of the technology assets that we had um, and so I think that was it. It's just like if you just refuse to quit right like you know. Like, you know, I mean, what if I was good, I mean, it wasn't like a rocket ship, right? It was good. Like, like given two or three more years, we would have turned it into like a, a good business. Like we would have continued to do what we were doing. We would have like, you know, probably gone more into business services than consumer stuff because there's more money there. Um, but just continuing to pivot and be like intellectually honest with ourselves about where the business was, I think is what kept us in the game long enough for something good to happen.
0: Yep. Well, I, I remember you and I talked about a biz dev deal there. And that's and we ended up just staying friends. And I think that's you know I obviously saw your intelligence and problem solving skills. and was impressed by that. I think for young people, that's important. That's an important lesson. As you're as you're on this journey, there's going to be people you're going to run into in the relation. I don't think we even did a deal together. I don't remember yeah, that we ever. I did I don't remember. I don't what, think yeah. we did anything. But we you know we enjoyed the interactions and we saw something in each other that you know that we both thought made sense and we stayed in touch. And that was probably ten years ago or, or, or more.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So I'm going to take the next student question in a minute. Um, something else I love about your career, and I think it's so instructive for the students and for anyone watching this, is you 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 don't have the you don't have the same pattern in your career. You're not moonshot, moonshot, moonshot. So you had you know you had a moonshot, then you sort of did a lifestyle business, then you had a, kind of another moonshot with, with Gizmo, um, and then you did then you joined a big company. You joined a public company, Taser which we all know um, from the the non-lethal weapons, but you joined to start a new division. So you became that ill-defined intrapreneur, someone inside a big company trying to start a new business. Um, And the folks here might not know it, but you guys were creating, with Evidence.com, that whole business that's in the news all the time now, which is the cameras, on-body cameras with policemen. So a couple things, what drew you to that intrapreneur position, different, lots of resources, but more bureaucracy, and and what about the camera business? Too early when you were there? Was it just too soon?
1: Uh, yeah, so I'll answer that question um, last because um, it actually yeah. Um, so on the like 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 why did I join? <laughs> I'll give you the. I'll give you the the candid answer, which is like, I was sick and tired of raising money. Yeah. (laughs) And it was like, after 11 years of being an entrepreneur, I still had the ish to work like that. But the startup game is rough. I mean, like people don't realize how how rough it is. Um, And it's a lot of fun and you learn like a hundred times as fast as if you just go get a job, which is why like most of my friends are entrepreneurs because you just go through this experience that like very few people have. And I mean, John, that's why... We we you know we got along and why we've kept in touch is because there's not a lot of people who have that background and experience to trade sort of war stories, um, but the reason why I was interested in it is because the pitch was so Taser at first I was like what well, this is ridiculous like this is like a weapons company this makes no sense um, but the but the founder of Taser actually has a pretty interesting background he's pretty connected to Silicon Valley which most people don't know um, and his entire pitch behind Taser was he was trying to obsolete the bullet. Now, the brand has taken on a life of its own, um as we've seen, so he's not good at managing that perception um but like his but like he firmly does not believe we need bullets. he's like you should be able to incapacitate people like uh you know without killing them um and that was the spirit behind taser, and so I'm like, okay, that's interesting um and by the way, and that's like that's like a noble cause, and that doesn't come through, so I felt like I discovered something um so that was interesting, and then the pitch to me was, well, you know. We know that cameras can, you know, can, can hold people accountable, the police and the public. Um, so instead of just putting them on our tasers, because there's actually cameras on many tasers, we wanna put them on the officer. But when we put them on the officer, uh, we don't know where that data is gonna go because police agencies are really bad at managing data. And so we're thinking of like building a cloud service. So what was fascinating to me is you're basically taking some of the country's most sensitive data, which is like the crime scene data, that goes to court um, that's typically only managed by these local governments or even federal governments in the case of, you know, federal agencies, um, and privatizing the management of that. I was like, well, what happens when you take all of the data that comes off of a police officer for, you know, for an incident who has a camera on, who's recording multiple hours a day, and you put that all in one place? You can put analytics on top of it, like, over time. Like, what insights can you gain from that? And, like, this was this is super fascinating to, like, convince the government they should allow a private contractor to manage their most sensitive data. So the challenge of that is this, is 2008, um, you know, before like the cloud is like obviously going everywhere. This was, you know, I think Amazon web services was like maybe two years old at this point. So just the, just the like, Oh my God, is this even possible? Are we going to be able to convince like, people to do this was like super interesting. Um, as far as the business, uh, I mean, we did go through a version of the product uh, that was not successful. Like the first product was like, was monstrous. It was like this, you know, this like camcorder on the side of your head uh, that officers were being asked to wear. Now we eventually got to a second version of the product. Now that business signs about $220 million in contracts a year. So it is a successful business now, <laughs> very successful. It's, um, and, and if you look at the value of the company, it's gone up. Um, dramatically since since we built this product um, just want to call that out so it doesn't sound like it was <laughs> you know we were too early and it wasn't successful um, but it took forever I mean selling to government I mean well so one let me just say one thing about entrepreneurship. and John cut me off I'm going too long here I, I can't see people's body language but um, they're all asleep. Uh, what's that they're all asleep no I'm kidding all right cool Well, then I'll just keep talking because um, <laughs> it doesn't matter um, uh, one being an entrepreneur, I was like, Oh, this is going to be easy street. I'm going to pull a salary. No big deal. Like, doesn't matter. It's like twice as hard as starting a company. Like I didn't realize this going into it. Yeah. Like this, I mean, this was like a moth to a flame. Um, because what I walked into was a mature business that had a lot of bureaucracy that had leadership that, you know, needed to be revitalized. Um, and so I got pulled into fixing like a lot of the issues with the company Um, as well as building this new thing, which was like wild and crazy to like, you know, you know, know, police departments, um, and doing that at the same time was incredibly difficult. Um, but I learned a lot of lessons about doing that that made, you know, that's actually making my life, um, you know, a bit easier here because I can see what all the problems could potentially be. Now Uber's much less bureaucratic, but, um, uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's why I was attracted to it. Um uh, you know, uh, and sort of like where we ended up with the business. It's, I mean, super successful now, 80% market share in the body camera business. Now it seems obvious that cops should wear cameras. The evolution of like trying to convince a police officer to wear a camera was, was, was like a fascinating, almost like social experiments uh, in convincing them of that. Um, but it just proves that if you like, if you're right and, and, you know, you're building products that make a difference and you're persistent about being you know, about the positive impact, um, you know, eventually, right answers do win. Most people just give up before they do.
0: Right, right, yeah. Sure. And, I, and I remember one of our Cajun Kitchen breakfasts, you telling me about this, and it just seemed to make so much sense to me. Like, of course, we would want, and this is probably, you know, 8, I don't remember, 09. Of course, we would want that information, both from the perpetrator and the officer's standpoint. Um, and, my, and what I was alluding to on too early was it just took longer than everyone thought. But it is, it is right. a very, very... And I think it's doing great work, right? It's helping citizens and you know, it's helping police as well. Um, I am going to go to the, another student's question. Do you feel there
1: is a significant difference in culture between Uber and your former position at Taser?
0: So <laughs> You sort of touched upon that. So let me, let me expand on that a little bit. Um, so oftentimes you learn by seeing things. Maybe you don't want to replicate in another business. And I don't want to. I don't want you to be down on you know either company. But maybe what are some of the things that you were able to take out of the Taser cultural experience and, and, and see change at Uber?
1: Yeah. So I think I mean, look like when I left Taser, it was actually like it was actually a pretty awesome place to work. Um, you know. Uh, so you know, I think I think all that was good. Um, on the on the lessons learned, number one lesson learned is um businesses products anything that you want to get done has to roll up to one person
0: Mm. Uh,
1: when you have duplicate owners of a single initiative oh my god it takes forever to get it done because because you have to build consensus and all this stuff now at the point of like massive if you're a procter and gamble sure you're trying to protect the business and you know maybe those checks and balances make sense but if you're just trying to get something going like Like when I came into Uber and because I've known Travis, he was like, and he's a big believer in this. He's like, look, you're going to do special projects. That was initially my job and title, but you own it. Like you're going to have your own team. You're not going to matrix into the organization. Like it's got to be all on you. Um, And that's how we're going to make quick progress on this because you can't be held up by a business that's at a different stage with different processes, different cult, you know, like all these things. Um, and so if you want to make quick decisions fast and you want to preserve your your own sanity as an entrepreneur, you have to be the one calling the shots. It's got to be, you know, like business has to live or die based on you. So setting yourself up in that way, going into opportunities is super important.
0: So, Jason, Uber is known for many things, but one is just the, uh, the way they just nailed the two sided market. And I'm sure inside it was difficult and messy, but on the outside, it looked uh, pretty elegant, pretty, pretty well orchestrated. You are obviously going after a lot of two-sided markets as well with Uber Rush and Uber Eats and other, um, other uh, solutions you're rolling out there. Do you have any pointers for, for I get a lot of students that want to start a two-sided market? And I usually tell them, don't do it, because it's so difficult to pull it off. What are, what are some of the ways that you guys do it? You're obviously working from a point of advantage now, but you're, it's still not a foregone conclusion that these things are going to be successful.
1: Yeah, so, so Eats is actually even more complicated. It's a three-sided marketplace, because you have eaters couriers and restaurants. And so you have to balance incentives across all of those things. Um, I mean, look, like the reason why, I mean, it sounds cliche to say, but when you meet the people who, I mean, you meet the first few hundred people at Uber, it's obvious why we were successful. Um, Like, like balancing this marketplace is just, it requires an incredible amount of operations expertise, which like Uber was built quite a bit different than most tech companies. Um, you know, I, like the operations team was bigger or, and, you know, and more influential, especially in early days, than the engineering team or the tech teams. Because they were the ones, I mean, like we had people in cities, like literally walking up to taxi drivers being like, hey, man, there's a, there's a better way.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And, you know, walking into limo companies, signing up, you know, limos like one by one by one by right, one. Right. And like from the outside, it's like, oh, there's a car on a map and I hailed it. Right. There was there was literally like operations. I mean, there were literally like 24-year-olds from like Stanford going door to door, like lobbying taxi companies, you know, or lobbying taxi drivers to drive for themselves. And that's actually how it started. It was just all grit. Um, there was no, I mean, like there was magic there, but like the grit is what created the balance. Right. right. Um, as far as starting a marketplace company, I mean, I think it's like, I always think that's kind of like an interesting like place to start, which is like like why, like, why do you want to start a marketplace? Like, I mean, if the, a marketplace is usually a solution to a problem, not necessarily like the, like the starting point, right? Like Uber is a marketplace because it, it, if it wasn't a marketplace, it wouldn't be as reliable. Like the cost wouldn't be as low. Um, it, you know, it wouldn't be as resilient. Um, so there's a lot of things that the marketplace model benefits for the business. Uh, and so, you know, but marketplaces are hard <laughs> balancing both sides is not it's not trivial and it's usually a lot of grind. Like, I mean, like I, I had lunch with one of the guys who was early at StubHub and, you know, if you hear the early days, it's like years and years and years of like them showing up outside Dodger Stadium, like the founders, like being like, no, there's a different way to buy tickets. And like eventually they like, you know compounded growth rate of like one and a half percent a week started to mean something. And it turned into this like huge success. Right. But they take a long time to get going and require a lot of determination.
0: Yeah. I think that's the key. It's being able to survive long enough to see that determination through. So Travis did a good job of raising money from, he had, um, you know, a couple successful companies before Uber, a couple of successful experiences and persevered in raising that money. Cause it wasn't easy to raise money for that venture um, at the beginning as you well know it was so different it was an airbnb type company that was so different most people just shook their heads and said i don't even know what you're talking about like that does not make sense to me let's take uh, one more student question yeah
1: as a consumer and frequent user of uber
0: it seems as though uber and lyft emerged around the same time but uber seems to have become a lot more successful and quickly became the industry leader in ride sharing apps what do you attribute to Uber's success over lyft and why
1: Uh, I'm not sure I can answer all that question. (laughs) Um, there's probably some trade secrets in there. Um, let's see, what can I say? So, so, so I think businesses, I, I think I, a little bit, I said it before, I'm really not trying to dodge the question. Businesses like are the people and the, when you look at, so when you look at the growth rates of Uber in the early days, it was really steep. And so if you think about the challenges of, of like keeping a marketplace healthy that's growing like this, that means you need to go get drivers really, really fast. And we, the, the company didn't have time to go figure out like, oh, what's the right algorithm or the right paid marketing strategy to go get drivers? It was like, whoa, okay, pick a bunch of smart ops people, push them into the field and just go make it happen. Um, and I think if you looked at like Lyft's driver supply situation in early days, um, it probably wasn't as healthy as Uber's just cause Uber was like very aggressive on like getting drivers on the road because it saw the potential. Um, I think Uber raised money, um, uh, to like further spur like city expansion, right? If you look at Uber city expansion over time, it's much faster than Lyft's. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, look like the people here are just competitors. And so, um, you know, is Lyft in Santa Barbara?
0: No, it was um, one of the founders was a Gaucho UCSB student.
1: Oh. Okay. Oh. (laughs) Sorry. Um, We all
0: we all love Uber.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like we just went to places that they didn't go, and I think that being ever like like being in more places allows people to use your product more. Um, So, like for example, if you were to fly to New York right now. Uh, well, I shouldn't say this. I don't know if Lyft is operating there right now or not, but, like, for many years they were not. If they are now, I might just be disconnected because I deliver food all day. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, if you're from L.A. and you got to go to New York, and there's Uber in L.A. and Uber in New York, but there's Lyft in L.A. but not in New York, like, you know, like, yeah, I'm just going to use the Uber thing, right? So... I think that's
0: all I can say. How, Jason, how much of your time, uh, if any, do you have to spend reminding your folks to just ignore a bunch of the press? Because you guys are clearly a, a company people like to write about, and they're going to write good things and bad things, true things and untrue things. You know, for a while there was a, ra- a rash of articles about Uber's business model is broken, they're going to go out of business. And ha- do you even have to talk about that at work, or do people just say, hey, that makes us stronger, we don't care, and, 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 and people just fight through it?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's a mix. I mean, I think that if you've been around Uber for a while, you're used to it. Um, I think if you're new to Uber, you're, you know, you, you you might get a little more shaken. Right. I think that from the top down here, like, you know, you know, we think very inside out about problems. Like, okay, that's what they said. I mean, we have our numbers. We right. see what's going on. Right, Are right. we worried based on what's actually going on or because of what they said? And it's often the case that what's going on is really good. Um, I mean, yes, we're investing super heavily, you know, that sort of public knowledge. Um, I think you're always battling that. But like, I think culturally, at least on my team, like my attitude is like, yeah, I mean, if you want to get your self esteem from the press, you're going to have a very tough life, right? So let's right. just focus on building something really great that our customers care about. And like, let's let, like, 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 let's get upset whenever our, our customer MPS drops. Let's not get upset whenever our, you know, like whatever is reported in the press is not what we want to hear. Right. Because yeah. negative stories get clicks. Um, reporters are in the business of get, selling ads. So the more clicks they get, the more ads they sell. Yes, there are really good journalists out there that write, you know, articles of substance, but most of this stuff is clickbait.
0: Yep, I, I would agree with that. I will take the last student question, and then I have a question to end things with. Having been president of three companies, what skills not taught in a classroom would you say are most essential for success in such a role? So three, a couple skills that you did not learn in the classroom that were helpful as a leader of companies.
1: I didn't learn any skills in a classroom that was useful <laughs> as a leader of a company.
0: You didn't take this class.
1: <laughs> I mean, I I, mean, I was a computer science major with like a, basically a film and English minor. So like I I wasn't taking economics classes or business classes or any of these things. Um, I think you can, I mean, I'm sure you can learn lots of skills like, you know, you know, in these classrooms. Um, But I think like, let's see, how do you like, how would I phrase it? you know, this is probably awkward in front of like a class of people and like with a professor present, but like,
0: um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, look, like, I think business is one of those things that's actually pretty simple, but people make it complicated, right? Like um, the lessons you learn about like leadership and management, all that stuff is super useful. But at the end of the day, like you have to start with, am I adding value to my customer? And then what's the value that I'm adding? And is that enough for me to run my business? And then the question is, can you prove that out and make it repeatable? Can you get people excited about it? are you excited about it? Um, I mean, I think, you know, what i found from a leadership standpoint is like, if you're excited, your team is excited. And if you're not excited and you're going back to a book to figure out how to manage and lead your team, um, it's like, it's not gonna come across right now. If you're excited, but you're just like bouncing off the walls, maybe you need some like reining in on like, no, you need to have weekly meetings with your team. Like you need to talk about people developments you know, people like, you know, want to move up on your team, they need to have their skills honed, all those things. Like, I think it starts with like the sort of raw material, your interest in it. And then what you can learn is like how to funnel that and direct that. So I think that's how it's useful.
0: Yep, I think that's great. I think there's a lot of things students can learn from you. One of the things that strikes me is you just got out there and started solving problems. You didn't go to a textbook. You didn't go to a professor and ask a bunch of questions. You solve problems, and you just started. I get that question a lot in office hours. John, how do I start? It's very simple. Just start. I think about how you did the golf company. You just got online, created a website, went to a golf store, bought some golf clubs, sold them online, and said, wow, there's actually a business here, instead of writing a you know, 15-page business plan of theoretical nonsense. So I think that's something we can all take away. So I have a, a bit of a student's question. I'm going to uh, um, morph it a little bit. Um, I think it's a good one to end on. So you're in a really interesting situation. You joked about, you know, I'm, I'm delivering food all day. Clearly, Uber Eats is a big, um, a big piece of the business, Rush, Essentials, et cetera. How much of your business or how much of your time, I should say, do you get to spend thinking about what's next and really contemplating that in a, in a thoughtful mm-hmm. way? Um, and then what are some, and I know you can't, you can't show us all your cards, but what are some facets of society that you think, you know, five plus years out were going to be impacted by what Uber's built today? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how much
1: of my time do I get to spend thinking on future stuff? Um, I'm, I'm spending more now. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, so a little bit of history is we launched, what is the current version of Uber Eats in December of last year? We're now in 41 markets. Um, we launched like Tokyo and Amsterdam and Dubai and Mexico city and all these places. So I spent a lot of my time executing on that. Um, I think the future of software's relationship with the physical world, like we're in dial up days right now. Right. Like meaning like, we're at the very beginning. Like, like I remember when I had a dial up connection I'm like, what would I need broadband for? <laughs> <laughs> um, and now it's like, Oh, of course. Right. Um, so I think that, look, autonomous vehicles are coming, right. Um, you know, we're investing heavily, Google's investing heavily, like Ford has signaled. That's going to be really fascinating because it's, because it's not just going to be, uh, I'm probably teetering on like, like whatever these like PR approved notes are about like what I'm supposed to say here. Um, uh, uh, like that's going to be really fascinating because, because, you know, kind of like with smartphones, I think when the iPhone came out, I was like, oh, look, it's a better phone. It's, you know, like, it's much nicer and more beautiful. I'm like, I have a calendar here that I can actually read. But, like, the actual impact was, like, far greater than that, and it was even hard to imagine. Um, So when you think about things like autonomy, like, imagine when you just give people time back in their day um, to, like, do stuff. (laughs) Um, You know, they can work in a car, right, like, at the sort of simplest version of it. Um, You can provide really low-cost access of transportation to people that – might spend two and a half hours a day on a bus, like imagine a world where transportation is so cheap and so reliable that like someone who's, who cannot afford a private car and Uber X to like get to work and has to take a bus or like have multiple stops and they can't spend time with their family. Like what happens whenever a ride that's more or less directly to where they need to go is the same price as a bus pass. Like, that that completely changes the way that person lives their life despite the fact they previously couldn't afford it. Um, so I think that, um, you know, as software starts to make our interactions with the physical world more frictionless, um, and hopefully lower cost we won't be successful if we don't do that. Uh, you know, I think you're gonna, you know, the chores of your day, the things that are high friction now that, you know, if you grew up with it you take for granted, um, Are going to start going away.
0: Well, we look forward to all of those things. I want more time in my day, so I'm looking forward to that. And we really, really appreciate that you took the time to share your insights with us. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.